Well, hello there, everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging, and welcome to today's COVID and aging adults update for older adults and families, uh, which I'm titling What to Know Before the Winter Holidays Update, uh, because today's date is um, December 8th, 2022. We're just about two weeks post Thanksgiving in the United States, and there's definitely been some important developments uh, regarding COVID and also recording regarding other respiratory illnesses this winter, you have probably heard that there is a lot of stuff um, going around. So I want to talk about it to equip you to have good information and make um, uh, good decisions, or at least have information with which to make your decisions over the next several weeks. So in this update, I am going to talk about um, the current situation with COVID, flu, and other illnesses, the latest on the Omicron subvariants, uh, what we've learned about the fall COVID booster so far, who should be extra careful this winter. I'm going to talk to you about one of my favorite tools for making things safer for indoor gatherings, because I know everybody wants to do that this winter. Uh, which is air purifiers. And I'm going to talk about a few other techniques that you can use also to reduce risk. And I'm going to talk about uh, if you do catch COVID or somebody you know does, uh, what to know in terms of taking care of yourself and in terms of protecting others. And so by the end, I hope to have addressed um, these frequently asked questions that I've been hearing. Does the fall COVID booster work and does it work against the newest Omicron subvariants? What are the symptoms of COVID now? Can you still get COVID if you've had Omicron before? How can you tell if it's COVID, flu, or something else? How worried um, should I be? Uh, and questions like that. So let's now start with the COVID situation right now in the United States. And um, so not surprisingly, it's all gone up since Thanksgiving. I think it started to go up a bit uh, before Thanksgiving. And then um, uh, we've seen a definite um, movement upward uh, since then. And that's not surprising. This happened last year also. At Thanksgiving, people do a lot of traveling, a lot of gathering, um, and that tends to make um, illnesses go up. Uh, so um, in a moment, I'm going to show you my favorite resources that you can keep following along um, this month and through the winter. But uh, we're seeing reported cases go up. And again, actual cases uh, tend to be much, much higher. We're seeing test positivity go up. We're seeing hospitalizations go up, especially in people over 70. Um, deaths are going up like quite noticeably, the average is going up uh, quickly and we're seeing things go up in nursing homes. So let's take a look at that together. Um, so uh, I still often turn to uh, the New York Times dashboard, but you can use the dashboard of your choice. And uh, so this is last year's big winter spike. So uh, first of all, we were doing a better job of counting cases than, than we are now. Uh, we are seeing it go up, but really what I want to point out to everyone is um, that things are going up now, but they never also got really low. Uh, they were lower here and certainly much lower over here. This is the summer of 2021. This right here is the spring, kind of February, really March um, was our lull earlier this year. And that over here, we we never got 
we never got as low. Um, so there's not a lot of talk about that in the media, but I think it's important to know that um, certainly for the last six months, there uh, has always been a certain amount of COVID going around, and now you can see it kind of going up. Um, and again, this is just reported cases. It doesn't, a lot of people are not testing themselves or they only test themselves at home. And so that doesn't get um, noted. So if we also want to see, uh, you know, have a sense of cases going up, um, the test positivity tracker at Walgreens, um, you know, is showing an increase right here. Um, so that means that it's on the upswing or you can look at wastewater. Um, like this one right here. This, I think, is a national one. It's most useful to look and find something for your city or county if you can, but you can see it going up right here um, as well. So also on a dashboard, like the times you can you can pick your state and often your, your county. And then what we see here is hospital admissions by age, um, you know, went up over here. Now they seems to have you know, it's flattening out. Uh, it'd be nice if it came back down. We will see. But uh, what's noticeable here is you just see how much higher the hospital um, admission rate is for people 70 plus than the younger age group. So this is, um, and uh, I'll try to find an article and share this, but I think in recent months, 90% of the COVID deaths have been in people age 65 plus. So this is a condition that has always disproportionately affected older adults, but it's even more and more so uh, now. And I could talk a little bit more about why I think that is um, later on. Um, and then if we look at deaths, you can see that um, the, you know, the deaths, the average was actually going down. We got below 300, which was nice. We were kind of in the 250s, but now it it has been um, picking back up. So, um, and you know, all of that is is worth keeping uh, in mind. Um, now, what about uh, nursing homes? Uh, so, I often look at the nursing home dashboard uh, as well. So here we don't see a big spike upward. So that is great. You can show this as, uh, a table. Um, and, oh, these are the deaths. I'm sorry. So deaths in nursing homes weekly are, um, about 250. So they haven't picked up yet. And sorry, right here in, these are the cases. And yes, we are seeing them go up. I stand um, corrected. And so again, this is our frailest, most vulnerable population. And usually when they're getting COVID, it is being brought in um, by other people. So that's concerning um, as uh, well. Um, so the other thing that is also going on, and you've probably already heard this, but we, after two very quiet winters for flu, we are having a rip-roaring flu season uh, this year. Uh, and it seems to be, for whatever reason, a lot of influenza A, there's very little influenza B. Um, if you got the flu vaccine, you were vaccinated for both A and B, two strains of A, two strains of B. Uh, and they do say that the flu vaccine is looking like a pretty good match for the flu this year, about 50% uh, efficacy, which is considered good for the flu shot, but we are still seeing lots of flu cases. And so far, the CDC has estimated that we've had 78,000 hospitalization and 4,500 deaths 
and we are really uh, just in, you know, the first um, six, eight weeks of flu season. And uh, so to show you that, because I do think the graphic is impressive, the CDC has a flu view weekly report. Um, and so here you can see the transmission and purple means very, very high transmission. And it's funny, about a month ago on Twitter, I saw one of the epidemiologists say, wow, I've never seen them use purple before. And there was like one purple state around here. Um, and now we have a lot of purple going on. Now, this part of the country was purple a couple of weeks ago and has come down. Um, it probably reflects the fact that when you have a lot of viral transmission, uh, it tends to peak and then start to come back down because it's it's gotten a lot of people already and it's running out of people or the number of people available for it to infect is um, slowing down. So, um, and this is turning into uh, hospitalizations and it's also, um, you know, some people say, well, it's not that it's that much worse. It's just that it's happening earlier. This is this year right here. Um flu illnesses. And usually it starts much later, kind of more in uh, December. Um, so you never know, maybe we'll peak early and come back down and the rest of the season will be quiet, but maybe not. Um, so right here, you can see hospitalization rates. And you may have heard a lot of children are being hospitalized for flu, for RSV, and um, that is true. Um, this is the hospitalization rate right here for children. But of course, this one right here is 65 plus. So uh, it doesn't make the news as much when older adults are being hospitalized as it does for children, but it is uh, it is totally happening. And um, so here, if we see flu-associated hospitalizations by age group, and you can see it, this is starting in October, the beginning of October. So you can see every week, these are the first four weeks of October, and these are the four weeks of November the hospitalizations are um, going up, especially among older um, adults. Um, now there is another virus that has been in the news uh, quite a lot, which is called RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Um, this is a virus that causes cold symptoms in many people, um, especially kind of elementary school age children young adults, middle-aged adults, um, but it can cause um, wheezing and serious respiratory distress, especially in infants who have smaller airways, and then it can cause hospitalization in older adults. So we have had a lot of RSV going around. It seems to be peaking and coming back down. Um, um, and then just a lot of people have cold and flu symptoms and end up testing negative for COVID and flu, and if their adults tested for RSV for that as well. So we also just seem to have a lot of other bugs going around that give people cough and cold symptoms sometimes for um, a few weeks. So, um, and let me just see. I wanted to say also, All right, my slides are in a slightly different order than I thought, but doesn't matter. The bottom line is that there are currently very high levels of respiratory viruses circulating. That's the bottom line that you should know. And so if you are out and about and interacting with other people, unless you're a hermit and they are a hermit also, and you only, you know, interact with each other, you should expect that um, you're likely to be exposed to flu virus, to COVID virus, 
and to other viruses when you are near others. So um, does this matter? Uh, I would say yes, it matters because um, it's an inconvenience and a, you know, a, a lot of people are missing work. Um, a lot of people are missing school. They've had like, they've had schools closed because so many people were sick in some counties. Um, but then for older adults, they can be easily hospitalized for a respiratory, um, virus, either because they get a pneumonia from that respiratory virus or because being sick tips their other chronic condition, their, their chronic lung condition, their heart condition, their kidney condition, um, into a flare that makes them dangerously ill. Um, so, uh, that's why it matters when there's a lot going around. Um, this year we're seeing a lot of kids getting hospitalized and actually, uh, it's not, you know, my job to follow pediatrics, but you may have heard that pediatric emergency rooms and intensive care units are overflowing. My friends who work in emergency rooms say it's really disheartening and frustrating how many sick kids come in and how it's very hard to find them a bed. Um, uh, high levels of respiratory viruses matter also because we know that respiratory viruses um, can easily be followed by a bacterial infection. So you can be very sick from just the viral pneumonia, but also when your body gets um, kind of challenged by fighting off a virus, it um, it can be easier to pick up a bacterial infection, uh, either because your body's kind of worn out or because your immune system is sort of distracted by fighting the virus. Um, so the exact mechanism is, you know, something that researchers try to sort out, but we just do know that it's quite common to have a bacterial infection on the heels of a um, respiratory infection. Um, and we see that in children, we see that in adults. Um, and then again, just being sick uh, feels lousy and puts you at risk of passing on the virus to somebody else. Um, so um, let me address the question of how worried should you be? Um, I just had somebody, <laughs> I just had somebody who's not in healthcare uh, tell me why COVID is not a big deal. And um, I disagree with that person. I also think it's not that person's work to be concerned about people who are at higher risk and it is my work. But in general, uh, as we learn to live with COVID, I think part of living with COVID um, is that it's always worth considering making some changes to what you're doing uh, and how you might be protecting yourself or people you love or people who are vulnerable um, when cases are high or going up. And right now, they are certainly high and going up. This is most important when it comes to people who are age 65 or older or if they have a lot of chronic health conditions. Those are the people who have the highest risk of being hospitalized, um, and of other serious, uh, outcomes such as death. Also, you know, especially when it comes to older adults being hospitalized, um, just being in bed for a week, people lose a lot of strength. They may not be able to return to their previous living situation and level of independence for a while. So, uh, I, I take this seriously. Um, and then, you know, for everyone, whether you're older and particularly vulnerable to hospitalization or not, um, when it comes to COVID in particular, there is a moderate risk of prolonged recovery time. We're still seeing, I mean, there are people for whom it's like a cold and not a big deal and they feel fine after a week. But um, I hear from a lot of people um, that they're still feeling not quite well three weeks later, six weeks later, um, either in terms of their energy levels, their, you know, brain clarity, um, uh, their exercise tolerance. So I think even now with so many people having 
already had COVID and or being vaccinated. I mean, a lot of people have both right now. Um, there still seems to be a moderate risk of having a prolonged recovery time from COVID. And then there's still a small risk of long COVID. Uh, for people who've never had COVID, um, it's probably, you know, between one and 5%. For people who have already had it a few times, I think it, you know, might be a little bit less. But um, for people who get that, um, it can be devastating and disabling. And then lastly, um, the research is still ongoing because a lot of the research was done on people during the first, was done from people who caught COVID during the first year of the pandemic when they were not, um, when they were not vaccinated and it was people's first time with COVID. Um, but as far as we can tell, for a lot of people having COVID, even if you were vaccinated, it is probably associated with a small increase in a lot of chronic um, diseases, po possibly clotting diseases. Um, and uh, so, you know, to me, COVID is a little bit Russian roulette with your your health. And so we're not going to hide and never play at all. But I think we can be thoughtful about um, how often we uh, take risks when cases are high. Now, why are we having a winter surge in general? Um, so many respiratory viruses have um, what we call seasonality. We see them go up uh, most years at certain times of year. Uh, many cold viruses and flu viruses tend to spread more in cold and dry weather. Um, so some people say that running a humidifier can help reduce it. It also, when your nose is more humid, um, that can help it do a better job at defending you against uh, viruses. Um, so, um, so there's that. And then certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, or at least in the United States, Thanksgiving, plus winter weather, more indoor gatherings, more transmission. Um, there's also when it comes to flu and RSV, because we didn't have a lot of it going around the last few years, there's a surplus of people who are considered more infection susceptible because they haven't had it recently. So in general, with a lot of viruses, if it's been a while since you had it, you're more likely to uh, get it again. And then we have the newest Omicron subvariants as well who are particularly equipped to get in there and, you know, get transmitted. So what I was going to say is that we are seeing a similar situation in other countries, at least with respect to COVID. So many other parts of the world are seeing a wave of COVID right now. And if you are planning to travel, you can use something like, uh, let me see here, um, our world in data the COVID Explorer, to look up uh, different countries. So for instance, if you were going to go to France, you could see that it was coming up here. Uh, Japan has had a rise um, as well. Now, these are, again, reported COVID cases per million. So you could also uh, switch this and instead try to look at um, hospitalizations or something that's maybe less likely to be affected by whether or not people choose to or uh, are able to get tested and have this uh, reported. Okay, so um, let's now talk about the variant situation. So um, here's the deal with COVID variants and subvariants. For a subvariant or variant to succeed, they need to be able to infect at this point, at this point, Almost everybody has either had COVID or been vaccinated or both. Um, 
And this is part of why COVID might seem milder is that a lot of people have died. So you kind of have people left who are the survivors and, um, you know, survive the initial uh, exposure and have developed some immunity. Um, so at this point, for a variant to succeed, it needs to be able to infect people who have been vaccinated or have had COVID, and it needs to outcompete existing variants. And um, so the current winners of the COVID uh, variant contest are um, in the United States, BQ1 and BQ11. Um, and uh, so you can see them, whoop, my page is reloading. Um, so you can see how we had BA5, we had BA5 dominant for quite a while, actually. It was dominant through most of the summer. And you can see here that once BQ1 gets going, it just takes off. And BQ1.1 is a subvariant of BQ1. Now, both of these are descendants of Omicron BA5, and all of these right now are still in the Omicron lineage. So um, presumably everybody remembers a year ago when Omicron burst on the scene. It was a very different variant than what we had before, which in the United States was Delta. And that was part of why it created that huge spike. Um, so now these new sub, and this is why they're called subvariants, is because they're a descendant of still of Omicron and not considered different enough to get their own uh, letter. But yeah, they've um they've they've taken off. Um so, and then we have a few other uh, smaller ones. In some parts of the world, the mix is a little bit uh, is a little bit different. Um, so, what do you need to know about these variants? Uh, so, the main thing is that they are very immune evasive. Uh, so, there are scientists around the world who, when they learn about a new variant, will go and study it in the lab and test it against, um, they often have a serum from people who have had COVID or have been vaccinated, and they kind of test it against and see sort of um, whether the antibodies that people have are able to grab onto the new variant. Um, and these are very immune evasive. They, they, dodge, they dodge all kinds of things. So that means that it's difficult for um, antibodies to stop them, and so it's super easy um, to catch it. Now, your body has several levels of defenses. So the antibodies in the blood are the first level. After that, you have other levels of defenses, especially if you've been vaccinated or already had COVID. Um, so a very immune evasive variant doesn't mean necessarily that people are going to get um, sicker or more likely to be hospitalized. I mean, we usually see hospitalizations go up just because more people catch it, including people who are susceptible to hospitalization because of their age or health status. And that's why we see it go up usually. Now, what is um, sad and concerning is that these uh, variants have been resistant to the antibody treatments that we had available and that were working with BA5, including one that's called Bebtelovimab, Bebtelovimab. There's a mouthful, but also Evusheld. And Evusheld was the long-lasting preventive antibody treatment um, that came out uh, probably about a year ago, that was especially good for people who had chronic health conditions or were immune compromised. Um, so that was effective against many subvariants, but not against these. So these are two antibody treatments that we've relied on for people who are more uh, vulnerable and that are no longer going to be available to help us uh, help people like that get through this.
so given all this, um, I think about how can you stay safer during the winter? How can we all stay safer during the winter? And um, what I would propose is that it's really important to think about a multi-pronged strategy. You want to be thinking about doing several things. The more of them you do and the more often you do them, um, the lower your risk. And so what I would include, you know, among the prongs, the list is, you know, one, getting a fall booster, which is especially important if you're over age 65. Um and getting the flu vaccine um, as well, which is relatively well ma uh, matched this year. Then we have masking, especially indoors and in crowded places. And I'm going to talk more about each of these in a moment. There's ventilation and filtration of indoor spaces. There's avoiding or being selective about uh, indoor gatherings, especially if anyone there might have cold symptoms. Um, you can consider rapid testing for COVID. I'm going to talk about uh um, how to think about that in a moment. And then if you catch COVID, especially if you're older, I highly recommend Paxlovid, by far the most effective outpatient treatment we have right now. So let me now take you through the booster and the latest information we have um, about the booster. Um, so as you all probably know, um, an updated fall booster was made available in September. And this one was new and novel in that it was bivalent. So it covered two strains, um, the original strain that we developed the original vaccine for. And then for the first time ever, a new updated strain, which was based on Omicron BA4 and BA5. They share the same spike protein. So, um, and that was made available to people if they were at least two months after their primary vaccine series or last uh, COVID booster. And um, the Pfizer version had 30 micrograms of mRNA and the Moderna version had 50 micrograms of mRNA. So does it work? Uh, so there was a lot of criticism of the booster when it came out in that it hadn't been, you know, it was kind of speedily developed. Um, the the data available was done in mice. Uh, well, now we have data, real world data on how it performed in people. So the CDC um, collected data on people in a network uh, from September 14th to November 11th um, and reported on the vaccine efficacy against symptomatic infection. So again, when we are um, looking at data about the vaccine efficacy, we have to say effective against what? And it could be asymptomatic infection, where you test people whether or not they have symptoms. They do that for healthcare workers. Uh, sometimes it could be uh, symptoms or people who come in with symptoms, uh, or it could be hospitalization, or it could be death. So this particular study was against symptomatic infection. It was people who came in with symptoms, got tested, and some of them tested positive. And um, they compared people who had gotten the bivalent booster to people who had gotten vaccinated with at least two doses, but hadn't gotten the new fall booster. And then what was kind of interesting is they ended up reporting the results based on whether you got the bivalent booster pretty soon after a previous vaccine dose, like two to three months after, versus eight months or more after your previous vaccine dose. And so what we see, so these numbers that I have right here, the first one is if you're soon after your previous vaccine dose, and the second is if you're eight months or more after your previous vaccine dose. So what we see is that for people age 18 to 49, the vaccine efficacy was 30%. 
Um, if you were got the bivalent soon after your previous vaccine and 56% if it'd been eight months. And then those numbers respectively for age 50 to 64 were 31% versus 48%. And for age 65 plus 28% versus 43%. So um, how to interpret this? I look at this and interpret, well, it's providing some protection. It works. It's not working the way the very first round of vaccines were promoted to work. If you all remember, we're in people who, you, you know, were middle-aged, the, the efficacy was 95%. Um, and this is all like fairly soon after people were got the booster, right? Because the booster only became available at the beginning of September. Um, so it helps. I just, um, still easy to catch COVID, even if you've had the booster. And we already knew that because ever since people have been getting boosted, anecdotally, there have been several people who two to four or six weeks after getting their boosters still came down with COVID. Uh, most notably, the head of the CDC herself, Dr. Rochelle uh, Walensky, that happened to her. Uh, the other thing that is interesting about this to me is that the vaccine efficacy is better when there was the longer gap between the previous vaccine dose and the bivalent booster. Um, this isn't surprising in that a lot of immunologists said that it's better to give more time, that if you kind of keep prompting the immune system over and over again within short periods, it kind of doesn't have time to finish processing its learning and work. Um, this is part of why you also don't want to get boosted right after having had COVID too. It's uh, at best probably not useful and potentially could be interfering with your immune system doing the learning it wants to do from uh, from the experience. So, so yeah, we're seeing a little bit more efficacy here. Now, we don't know. It's in this kind of study, possibly people who got the bivalent booster soon after the previous booster had, you know, were different than people who waited, you know, had more, had more risks, had more concerns, you know, less functional immune systems. Um, but still, I think that's, you know, uh, thought provoking, uh, to see. So it's, it's possible that the booster might be more effective when you've had more time since the prior boost. And, and I say this because it's funny with the boosters. On one hand, there are a lot of people who just have not bothered. They don't think it matters. They don't think it works. Um, but then there are, you know, a minority who kind of want to have it as often as possible, as far as I can tell, you know, and now that cases are going up, um, I see them saying, well, I got the booster in September, but when can I get another one? And um, I think it's good to pay attention to COVID and being concerned. But if you're concerned, I think rather than getting boosted every two to three months, it's important to bring in some of those other strategies that uh, I'm going to review soon. Um, so next, the question is, what a, does the fall booster work against BQ1 and BQ1.1? Because this time period right here is really when we were transitioning from BA5 predominance to BA, uh, BQ1 um, predominance. So uh, hot off the press, um, there was a study, a preprint, just um, released earlier this week where they studied it in the lab. And they found that the BA5 bivalent booster generated uh, a good antibody neutralizing titer against BA5, um, which is what we expected, but not against BQ1.1. Um, um, that said, they also studied people who had hybrid immunity. So people who had been vaccinated, had had COVID, and then got the bivalent booster, and they had a more expansive 
um, antibody response. So they might be a little bit more uh, protected. Um, so uh, my takeaway is that now that we have BQ1, I think the booster is even less likely to protect people from catching COVID and transmitting COVID. Now that's not to say that it's useless because um, a really important role for the booster, especially for older adults, is to prevent hospitalizations. And there are experts who believe that in general, it was a mistake to frame vaccines in the first place as a way to not catch COVID, um, that the emphasis should have been um, from the beginning on this will keep you from getting dangerously sick from COVID. Um, so is the fall booster working for this? Uh, probably. We don't yet know because first of all, booster uptake, fall booster uptake in the United States has not been very high, even among uh, older adults. I think it's way less than 50%. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's probably something like 30, 35%, if I remember right. It's something like 5% for everybody who's eligible, um, like over 12 Um Although given how many children had COVID this year, uh, it's not clear to, I would have to look at the data that there's a benefit to boosting them because they are innately already at very low risk of hospitalization, but we won't get into kids right now. Um, so um, my guess is that this booster will work the way previous ones did. So three months ago, you know, I said, I think this fall booster, I'm not sure it's going to prevent infections, but it will probably reduce hospitalizations. Um, and so, so far we're seeing it play out that it's not reducing infections, but I would still expect that it will help reduce hospitalizations in uh, older adults. Um, so we will know more within a few months, but um, I, I think uh, older adults, definitely if you're over 65 and probably if you're between age 50 to 65 should be getting the bivalent booster. Now, you may be wondering which one, if you haven't yet had your bivalent booster. Either is fine. Moderna contains more antigen. So for older adults who have a choice, I lean towards that because higher antigen doses are generally more stimulating um, to aging immune systems. So my key takeaways for you for the fall booster, um, I absolutely encourage people to get it. Um, and if you're under age 50, if you're going to be anywhere near somebody who's vulnerable to COVID, and many of us are because we have older family members, um, you know, it's it's not a guarantee that you won't get COVID, but it still might reduce somewhat your chance of getting or transmitting COVID. Uh, so I recommend getting it. Um, and again, it's especially important for people who are older, especially over age 65. So do get the booster, but don't think that being boosted means you're safe indoors with others, that you can go to holiday parties without any concern or travel without any concern or get together um, with your family for um, Christmas without any concerns. You can still easily catch COVID. And then also a COVID booster does not provide any protection against flu, RSV, or all the other nasty respiratory viruses that are going around. Um so I do recommend the booster. The only caveat is that if you have recently had COVID, I would recommend waiting at least three months. Uh, the CDC says you may wait three months, um, but 
the immunologists um, that I've seen comment on it have said that generally you're going to get a better immune response to the booster if you have waited, um, you know, more like four to six months since uh, having had COVID or a previous uh, vaccine dose. And having COVID in terms of a stimulus to your immune system is like way more substantial than the booster. <laughs> so, and it wanes. I mean, that's what we've seen is that the effect of having had COVID in terms of protection against catching COVID again, wanes much more slowly than the vaccine. The vaccine is just, it's a smaller stimulus to the immune system. Um, okay. So let me now move beyond. So we need something that's more than COVID vaccines and boosting. Um, so let's now talk about some strategies that can work against all the respiratory viruses. And so basically, um, we want to remember how they spread. Most respiratory virus transmission comes from airborne spread. That is true for many colds, for the flu, for COVID. So the basic principle is that sick people exhale virus. Uh, they exhale it just as they breathe. They exhale it more when they talk. They exhale it even more when they cough, when they sneeze, when they sing, when they shout. And I didn't put it on here, but when they exercise, right? So that is where you have a high concentration of people's exhalations is an indoor gym um, or somewhere where people have been singing um, or, you know, bars where people are close together and, you know, shouting to be heard over the music. Um, the next thing to keep in mind is that the virus, once people exhale it, when people, you know, are doing things with their mouth, you get like a spray plume and some of it falls down, but some of it is on small particles that float around. Um, so the virus can hang around in the air for a while, especially in an enclosed indoor unventilated space. So then if somebody who is susceptible inhales enough virus, how much you have to inhale probably depends on the person. And again, some air has a lot of virus in a small amount. Some of it has been uh, diluted. But if you inhale enough virus, you can get an infection and then an illness. Now, there are some viruses that, excuse me, there are some viruses that are spread more through droplets and surfaces. RSV is actually thought to be uh, spread more that way. So that's why it's also important during this time to be thinking about washing your hands, especially if you're touching things that other people have touched, and to avoid touching your eyes and your nose and face with your hands unless you've just recently washed your hands. Um, so given that's the way these viruses are being transmitted, what's going to help protect you? You know, one, masking especially indoors in crowded places, two, ventilation and filtration of indoor spaces where we clear the air of what people have exhaled, three, being selective about indoor unmasked gatherings, um, four, avoiding unmasked indoor gatherings with people who have cold symptoms, if you're able to determine whether they have it or not, and then, of course, being recently vaccinated for COVID and the flu. So let me now talk about masking because I hear a lot of things about masking that I don't think are true and that I don't agree with. For instance, that masking doesn't work because this or that study showed that masking didn't work. So a study of masking is a study of like whatever they told people to do, people may or may not have done it. You know, masks are basically about um, physics. Masking works if you wear a high quality, well-fitting mask. So I'm going to show you the ones that I've been wearing um, right here. Um, so this is this is a V-Flex, um, 3M V-Flex. 
Uh, this is my favorite one to wear. Um, this is an N95 and it's my favorite one to wear for a long time, like on the plane, because it's really breathable. It's really breathable. And N95s have head straps, not ear loops. And that makes them, hopefully everyone, yeah, everyone can still hear me. Um, so it does look a little goofy. I will concede that. This is not the thing that you're going to look stylish with when you come into the holiday party or on the plane. But um, it's very breathable and it's protective. Um, so another popular one is the 3M Aura, also an N95 um, and looks a little, looks less goofy than the uh, 3M V-Flex. It's it's not as breathable. I mean, if you don't, if you're one of those people who feels like when you wear a, an N95, I can't breathe, this one's a good one for you. Um, and then there are, um, this is the Powicom Korean KN95. This one I wear to go in the grocery store because I'm not going in for very long. Um, and that's earlobes. And these are certainly much easier to put on and off. They don't mess up your hair. Um, so uh, when you wear these kinds of masks, assuming that you have like a good fit on your face, when you blow out, the air should come out the mask like surface and not be blowing out the edges. Um, if you're wearing that, those do a pretty good job of filtering out particles. So either if you're sick, they will help keep them in with you and not getting out to other people. Or if you're trying to not get sick, they will help keep out the things that other people are exhaling. Are they completely fail safe? No. Um, you know, most of us are not going to get fit tested. That's like the best way to make sure you have a mask that fits and works well. OSHA requires fit testing of N95s for health providers in the workplace. You're supposed to actually go and get fit tested once a year and then, you know, wear that. That's not easily available to the public. At the same time, even if it's not a perfect fit, it is still keeping things um, out. So it, it's just the physics of, of uh, you know, air quality. Um, so, um, so during this time, these all, even this one, which is not as good as the N95s, are much better than a surgical mask. I still go into the grocery store and see people wearing surgical masks or cloth masks. Those are potentially better than no mask. <laughs> They're still like filtering out something in some cases, especially the surgical ones um, can filter out some things, but this is much better. So just get some of these. They're not even... They're not even that expensive. Uh, you can wear it all day. You know, like often I'm indoors and, you know, working out of a home office. And so I might use the same one for several days. Uh, whereas if you're wearing it all day, maybe you're only going to get a day or two of use out of it. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so, uh, masks do work. You just have to wear a good quality, well fitting one and wear it often or always when you're indoors with people who are not part of your household. Now, one thing that comes up is you need to mask outside. The flip side to this is, isn't outside always safe? Um, outside is safer because as I'm going to explain for ventilation, there's, you know, outside tends to be well ventilated. It's moving air around. What people exhale gets diluted very quickly. Um, and, uh, so it's harder to inhale enough, you know, virus particles when you're outside. However, if you are in a crowd or if you're going to be sitting close to somebody talking 
with them like talking towards your face for a while, you could definitely catch something. And people have definitely caught COVID at outdoor weddings and other outdoor events. There's also outside as an outdoor dining, um, which we certainly have here in San Francisco, even though it's chilly. And the outdoor space is still often fairly enclosed with plexiglass barriers, because otherwise it would be too windy and cold for people to be sitting out there. And, you know, that to me feels like a semi <laughs> outside space. Um, so, uh, do you need to wear a mask outdoors? You know, again, it depends on the crowd and how, how careful you, uh, want to be or how much somebody will be close to your face. But, but in general, eating outside is going to be safer than eating in many indoor spaces. So that's masks. Um, now what about ventilation? So, uh, these I think are really underused. I would love for us to sort of like, continue to push for an indoor air quality um, movement because um, it's a little bit like the way we treat water, right? People don't boil their own water to keep themselves safe. We have a strategy to treat it and keep it clean enough. And we can do the same thing with our indoor air with ventilation and filtration. So um, the difference between the two, ventilation means bringing in outside air, which dilutes what others have uh, exhaled. Um, filtration, as I'm going to explain in a moment, means running air through a filter that captures particles. So um, what I have learned about this fall, as I've learned more about this, is um, that public spaces and commercial buildings usually have requirements for mechanical ventilation and for some kind of active strategy to bring in outside air, although they may not always be running the HVAC system in a way that does it, but they're supposed to be set up from that. But residential homes usually um, don't have a particular ventilation strategy built in. People can open windows and doors, and then otherwise there's kind of like the leaking of windows, which is often considered a bad thing for energy and efficiency, but does improve uh, ventilation. So um, if you want to improve ventilation in your home, um, you can open windows. You generally want more than one. Only one open is not going to necessarily create a current and pathway. Um, two on, you know, opposite sides will generate some, some airflow or doors, uh, which can be harder. And if you're wondering how well ventilated your space is, or you can do this for a public space, I think I mentioned these before. This is a carbon dioxide monitor. This is the Aeronet 4. Um, uh, it does cost, um, I think it's $250 on, uh, on Amazon, but you could ask Santa for one. Um, so you can use these to see what is the ventilation, um, of a space. And generally, if you have more than one person and you want it to be adequately ventilated, you would aim for less than 800 parts, um, per million. So outdoor air is generally like 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide. So people have taken these on airplanes and sort of shown how, especially during boarding, tends to go way, way up because they're usually not running the ventilation system uh, during um, during boarding. Um, so likewise with ventilation, if you choose to go to a restaurant, personally, I think this is a time to be very selective about indoor dining, but I'll leave it up to you. Um, but what is the restaurant doing to ventilate or, or filter? Um, right now in the wintertime, for a lot of places, windows open is not necessarily going to be viable. But do they have another approach? So if windows open or bringing in outside air is undesirable because it's often leads to people feeling cold and uh, is not energy efficient in terms of heating the home, then the alternative is filtration. 
Um, so again, filtration means filtering out particles through an air filter. And a HEPA filter and certain other kinds of filter can remove COVID and other viruses because they generally are able to remove those small uh, small aerosol particles that are carrying virus. So a HEPA air purifier basically uses a fan to pull air through the filter. And it's a great option for cleansing the indoor air, especially if outdoor ventilation isn't feasible. Um, now, uh, air purifiers, depending on, you know, are going to cost you still at least usually uh, $150 or more. So there is another option um, that is less expensive um, and actually uh, does more filtering <laughs> you know, as well, which is called a Corsi Rosenthal box. It's basically a do-it-yourself air purifier that you make with a box fan. And then MERV 13 filters are filters that you put um, not in like a small residential air filter, but um, into uh, possibly like your other air filtering systems. Um, but you can buy them. And let me show you right now what a Corsi Rosenthal box uh, looks like. Um, and again, I think this is something that a lot of people are underestimating and that I would love for us to, um, here's the CDC report on the effect of the bivalent MRI, mRNA vaccines. I'll share that. Okay, so Joey Fox has become one of my heroes. He is an HVAC engineer, uh, I believe based in Canada, who has written, and here he has summarized all his COVID threads on how you can use indoor air engineering to, um, reduce COVID or reduce illnesses or otherwise improve indoor air quality. Um, so this is a Corsi Rosenthal box. So it's a box fan. And then these are the MERV 13 filters and you use some cardboard to provide a little structure and you duct tape it all together. And it is um, less expensive for the amount of air that it can filter than many commercially bought filters. So this is what he uses in his home. And so especially if you are a do-it-yourself or sciencey kind of person or would like to do it with a, um, you know, maybe middle school child or high school child as a cool science experiment, this is a good option um, as, uh, as well. Um, so I was recently asked uh, when it came to my own family, um, you know, and I asked about, do we have any air filters for these indoor gatherings? I was asked what to look for. So let me share that with you. Um, so if you don't want to go ahead and make a Corsi Rosenthal box, I have not yet gone ahead and tried to make one myself. Then you can buy a good um, HEPA air purifier. And um, so I've sort of studied what the air quality engineer people have said. Um, and there has been this trend towards air purifiers, including these fancy features, um, like, you know, automatically detecting air quality and changing the fan speed based on that, um, which from a COVID prevention perspective, you probably don't want to do because they can't detect like, they're not detecting, I think, CO2 um, uh, or COVID particles. Um, because purifiers, air purifiers were originally designed to help people with removing um, smoke pet dander, pollen. They're certainly useful like for us here in California during wildfire season, if the air quality is bad outside, they can help with that. Um, so, so often those automated features. But there's also been a trend for some of them to sort of include ionizers, 
Um, and these are actually, this is a marketing thing. They are unproven in terms of benefits. According to the scientists, they might even generate ozone, which is great in the upper atmosphere, but is actually toxic and hazardous to us if we breathe it in. Um, so uh, there is one um, indoor air scientist who was actually sued by one of the for defamation by one of the companies that makes these devices with ionizers, uh, just because she kind of was publicly saying there's no evidence for it and recommending against it. And that I think is kind of uh, uh, scandalous. But let me share with you what I have learned by going through the um, information from um, some of these indoor air uh, engineers. So if you're wondering, okay, which air purifier and how do I use it? Because you have to use it properly. Um, it's going to depend on the size of your uh, space that you wanna purify. Um, and what you wanna aim for is at least four to six air changes per hour. Because apparently on their own, most indoor residential spaces are only going through like 0.5 air changes per hour, um, unless you've opened the windows and otherwise, again, generate the ventilation. So when you are shopping for an air purifier, you want to consider the clean air delivery rate, which means the air filtering capability of the device. So that means how many cubic feet per minute of air can it filter and deliver out to you? Um, then you want to consider the size of the room to be filtered. If you have a bigger room, you need either a device with a bigger filtering rate capacity or you need to run two of them. And then uh, from a quality of life perspective, you also want to consider the noise when it is running at maximum capacity. Nobody is going to enjoy being in their living room having a gathering if you have something that sounds like a jet engine taking off uh, in the room. So the recommendation that I've heard is to aim for 55 decibels uh, or less. And so you can do like all kinds of calculations, but I came across a few rules of thumb that seemed handy. Uh, so one person said, you look for a unit that has a clean air delivery rate. They said for smoke, removing smoke, because sometimes it's different for removing smoke than other particles. Uh, look for something like that, that has a clean air delivery rate. That's two thirds of your room area. And another uh, air quality engineer said that generally you want 100 cubic feet per minute of clean air delivery rate for every 1,000 cubic feet of room volume. Um, and again, that's not just the square footage, but that's counting the height of your um, ceiling to get six air changes per hour. So let me share with you a few um, resources that can help you uh, with that. Okay, so um, I'm going to share this too. He, uh, this is uh, Joey Fox, who did a um, an interview that I thought was very good at explaining um, a lot of these air quality issues. Um, so this is the air filter that we have in our house. It is a top rated filter according to the wire cutter um, right here, the Koei Air Mega. Um, now, what you want to keep in mind is that, see, right here, they will tell you. It'll accommodate a room size up to this. And what I've been told is don't just take their word for this, but really look again at the clean air delivery rate. Um, so here you can see dust, pollen, smoke. Um, they're not that, uh, they are not that different from each other. Um, so if you look at an air purifier and it says the clean air delivery rate is 100, that is for a very small space. That is probably not going to be useful for your uh, your gathering. Um, so this is a 
a cool website um, that has some information here. This is this is the air quality scientist who was actually sued by that company. She has a GoFundMe, but here she has a good thread on which portable air cleaner do I need to buy? And she actually went through and got the statistics on many of them and shared them in this graphic um, right here. And so here you can see she, this axis is actually the cost. So if you are sensitive to cost, the most cost-effective solution is that do-it-yourself Corsi Rosenthal box. Um, that is the one that is the most um, cost-effective. If you are purchasing, she considered the purchase costs and replacement filters during a year. It is a good idea to make sure that you can get replacement filters easily enough. Um, how often you have to replace it depends on the device, depends on how often you're running it. For instance, we don't run ours very often. We have run ours basically when somebody in the household has had COVID um, to avoid giving it to other people, which has actually usually been successful. Uh, or we have run it sometimes after we've had to have people in the house to repair things. Uh, we run it for a while after that along um, with, uh, with Windows. Um, so here she's kind of ranked the, um, the sound, the clean air delivery rate, and then also the um, cost right here. There is another version. This is her uh, Google spreadsheet. So you can look up an air purifier that you are considering. And um, so for instance, you might see an ad for this Lavoit. Lavoit is another brand that makes a lot of air purifiers, but the clean air delivery rate is only 141. Now they have put an estimate here of what they think the square footage, uh, appropriate square footage is. So for, here's my air purifier right here. And um, so it looks like what they're putting right here is they're putting the manufacturer's recommendation which is probably an overestimate um, uh, over here. I looked up reviews of mine and somebody who did air quality said he thought it was suitable for um, something that was more like 250 uh, square feet. Um, so here's one of the other uh, Lavoie ones that is pretty popular as well. It costs a little bit more. So uh, take a look. I think Koei has been in business for longer, has a little bit more of a track record for durability and filters. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you're hesitating, I think one of those two could be uh, uh, an okay choice. Um, and then you need to use it properly. So let me go through some uh, practical tips. Um, so you do want to consider the size of a room being filtered. You can't take the one device I had, and then do your thousand square foot whole house with it and say, well, we're running a purifier in one room over here. You need to think that like the device is basically inhaling the air around it. So it's also more effective when you put it closer to the center of the room, but then you need to be careful that the cord is not creating a trip hazard, something I think about as a geriatrician. Uh, it does not make sense to have it filtering right next to the open window that is bringing in air from outside put it more in the space where you think the windows are not getting to, you know, the the foyer or the room that has people going through it a lot, but doesn't have uh, windows. Or you could put one in um, every kind of, you know, medium-sized room where you think people will be gathering and hanging out. So again, it, it depends a little bit on how many people you're expecting to have and the size of your place. 
Um, so uh, I read a recommendation that one should aim for a clean air delivery rate of at least 240 cubic feet per minute. I think that sounds sensible. Um, and remember that that, that uh, capacity presumes the devices on max speed. So if you get your air purifiers and then you run them on low all the time, you're not getting the same amount of purification. And the more people you have exhaling and generating stuff, the more the more you want to be running it on high, <laughs> right? Uh, and cleaning the air um, faster. So again, for more information, I, I recommend those two air quality uh, engineers. And you know, here are two devices. Well, I'll post a link. Um, it will probably be an Amazon affiliate link. So if you choose to buy, it'll be a small contribution to better health while aging if you'd like to help support this work. Um, but um, those are possibilities, or you can shop around more, or again, you can make a Corsi Rosenthal box and I'll post a link. Uh, there's one on the Clean Air Crew website, but I'll post some links to um, help you learn more about those. And I'm sure there are lots of YouTube videos to walk you through it. Uh, as well. And, and a Corsi Rosenthal box generally will have a higher clean air delivery rate for a lower cost of, it's not quite purchased because you have to put it together, but buying the materials than a commercial um, air purifier. Okay. So next thing to consider doing um, to have a healthier winter gathering season um, is to consider being very selective about your indoor gatherings. Um, so when cases are high, unmasked indoor gatherings are more likely to expose you to COVID, but also to flu and lots of other things. The bigger the gathering, the more the risk. And so it's not just how many people are at the party, but are you going to eat indoors at restaurants? I personally think this is a good time to be very selective about um, doing that. So just really ask yourself, how important is it for me to be there or how much of a, how much would I be giving up by not going? Right. And remember, if it's about restaurants, we're not talking about never going to a restaurant ever again. We are talking about maybe being selective or dialing back on indoor dining or stopping while cases are high, which is now. <laughs> so they will probably come down at some point and or the weather will be better and they can open windows a lot. And then indoor dining will be much less risky than it is right now. Um Another thing to consider is you could potentially wear a mask, again, the N95, um, or possibly the uh, KN95, a little less good. Um, that would be another possibility. So that might be a good option if you really want to go see a concert, like your child or grandchild's winter showcase. Um, you could go and wear a mask. Um, right? Because it doesn't require being unmasked. So activities that require a lot of eating and drinking. You, you know, you're going to have to take your mask off often, if not most of the time. But there are many other indoor uh, things that we might want to go and participate in um, that don't require our mouth to be uncovered. So shopping indoors, uh, watching shows, um, travel, <laughs> you know, in trains, subways, buses, planes. Uh, those are all times where um, if you choose to partake in that, you could wear an N95 and be safer. And then to the extent you can, you could encourage ventilation or filtration of the space. So if your family is going to be uh, having an indoor gathering, you could bring up, you know, is there a way that we can improve ventilation filtration? Can we crack some windows? Even just cracking two windows um, is going to help and, you know, bring over your air filter or possibly get one. 
Let me now move on to symptoms and detecting illness. Um, so uh, what are the symptoms of COVID right now? As far as I can tell, they are extremely, extremely variable. So we, and it seems to be like more just dependent on the person, I think, than the variant, although it's a little early to tell with the, the new variants. Um, so we are seeing people test positive with COVID after anything from mild cold symptoms, sometimes the mildest sniffle congestion, sometimes a bad head cold, sometimes fever, body aches, the whole kind of flu thing, sometimes sore throat, sometimes there's not. And then what's important to note is that when people are older and frailer, they can be quite sick and have almost no obvious symptoms other than feeling blah or being much more tired than usual. We we have seen this for decades with all kinds of illnesses, um, uh, whether infectious or not. It's a known phenomenon with the flu, and uh, we should expect it also with uh, COVID. And then some people have no symptoms at all. Um and uh, we'll test positive for COVID. We are also seeing now that now that most people have some immunity to COVID in that they have either had COVID or been vaccinated or often both, um, people often have symptoms before they test positive on rapid tests, especially if it's the nose swab. There are still a lot of people who say that if you do like the throat um, swab or uh, inside of the cheek, that occurs positive a day before the nose. I don't know if that's gonna be true with BQ1. Um, but what we do know is that there are people who feel sick for days and they only turn positive on their home rapid test on day four or day five. So what that means is that you really during this time should treat any cold symptoms as possible COVID or as something else worth avoiding, right? I mean, um, uh, I know so many people, myself, family members, other people who have been sick with basically what seemed like bad head cold and fatigue symptoms for a few weeks. And it were not positive for COVID. Uh, it probably wasn't the flu. I mean, in people our age, the flu tends to really like hit hard, body aches, fever. Um, and, um, you know, but that's kind of worth avoiding or not giving to others uh, as well. So ideally people who have cold symptoms would stay home. Now, a lot of people are still showing up. They don't want to miss the party. They don't want to miss the event. They don't want to miss the activity. I don't know. They have their justifications. Um, so if you have cold symptoms and you really don't want to stay home, then if you go out, could you wear an N95 around other people? Um, that is the way to take care of others. Um, as for uh, if you are hosting a gathering, um, you can tell people and be very explicit um, that ask people to only come if they're feeling well. Um, now, if you do the thing of test for COVID, if you're not feeling well, you will have some people who have it who are going to show up because they tested, they were negative, and they're just not at the time where they're going to test positive yet. Um, so, um, so again, the safest way is to be pretty careful about people who have cold symptoms and discourage them or ask them to mask uh, if they are going to come to the extent you're able to. And then if you have cold symptoms, it's to be pretty careful about sharing your exhalations with other people because you might get them sick. Um, and same thing goes for whatever's on your hands. Um, if they put their hands on it and put it in their face, they could get certain kinds of viruses as well.
Now, what about rapid tests before gathering? So this was a strategy that I've been, um, you know, definitely have encouraged in prior years. Um, I think right now, I, I mean, I just think with time, it's there, there are, it's, it's a more and more of a spotty strategy. Um, now if people test positive, that's likely to be a true positive, but a lot of people will not be positive even if they have COVID if they're within their first, first few days. So, um, if you have a lot of tests, it's also that now it's gotten harder to get tests. They cost money. Um, so, um, if you have a lot of tests available, a rapid test before gathering might detect some contagious COVID cases, but you could easily miss them. So I think it's fine to use rapid tests if they're available. It's just, it's like the booster. It's not, it reduces your risk. It's not fail safe, anywhere near fail safe, um, especially if people have symptoms. And so again, don't forget about the ventilation or filtration, which help a lot as well and might potentially be more useful. Let me now talk uh, for a little bit about treating COVID. So um, the most effective outpatient treatment in general for COVID is Paxlovid. It's especially helpful for older adults because it reduces your hospitalization rate by quite a lot. And since older adults are at a fair risk of hospitalization in the first place, that's where it makes the biggest difference. You want to start within five days of symptoms. Sooner is better, ideally within two to three days. And I would encourage you to consider pushing back if the health providers hesitate. I was kind of horrified to hear that in my online programs, uh, one um, person said that the doctor refused to prescribe Paxlovid to her 87-year-old mother saying he'd heard there was too much rebound and didn't want to bother. And he prescribed something that's much less effective, that didn't work as well for her. Um, and so I, I would really, you know, I would push back um, or ask for more questions. Now, rebound is real. It affects an estimated 10% of cases. Uh, it's a problem when it happens and that people are sick for longer, have to isolate for longer, can give it to other people. But I would still say it's not a reason to not take Paxlovid. The other reason why there are sometimes issues with Paxlovid is that it interacts with many medications that older adults often take. But many of those interactions can be avoided by uh, stopping the medications for a few days or possibly switching. So it's not always possible, but the data show that right now among older adults, we are underusing Paxlovid and not enough of them are boosted. And I would like to see us make progress on both of those. And um, and then keep in mind that monoclonal antibodies are no longer an option uh, because they don't work against the newest variants. And the one, um, uh, the last one that was available, the FDA actually revoked its emergency use authorization. Um, so it, you know, it's not even up to doctors, I think, anymore to uh, use it or not. What about the flu? Um, so there can be a lot of overlap between flu symptoms and COVID symptoms. So older adults with respiratory symptoms or who otherwise feel noticeably ill should get a lab test for the flu and for COVID. So you can find out which one it is because they are both treatable with antiviral medications, not the same one. If it's COVID, Paxlovid, if it's flu, Tamiflu, and like that works by far best if you start again within the first few days. That's how antivirals work. Um, so Tamiflu is recommended for treatment of people who are at high risk for complicated influenza and everybody over age 65 is considered high risk. Also people who are younger and have many chronic health conditions. If you're in doubt, ask. If you feel like you're at high risk, they'll probably give it to you. Um, so it's important to treat um, when possible. 
Uh, and then if you're sick, think about protecting others. So if you have COVID, assume you're contagious, not just five days, whatever it is, the current recommended isolation period, but you're basically contagious until you're negative on rapid tests for two days in a row. Once people definitely have COVID, the rapid tests are provided they're not expired. Um, and one of the ways you know if they're expired is not just the date on the box, but if the control line is faint or not showing much, then that's probably a test that's too old and should be thrown out and get a better one. Um, but once people actually have COVID and have been tested positive on rapid, it's probably a pretty good proxy for being contagious. You want to test negative two days in a row because sometimes people test negative one day and then positive the next day. If it was only one day negative in between, that's probably not the rebound phenomenon. It's probably just that they didn't get a good sample um, the uh, during the first day. So two days in a row would be good. Uh, if it's the flu, people with flu are considered contagious for one day before they start having symptoms and five to seven days after being sick. So giving it seven to 10 days is safe. And so for, for anything, the way you protect others is you, you stay home as much as you can. You wear an N95 if you leave your isolation room. Um, so you wear an N95 in your house and you can have your housemates wear one um, as well. To reduce the risk, you use ventilation and filtration in the home as much as you can. You crack windows, you run air purifiers. And if you have to leave home for work, for school, uh, to grocery shop, um, I would recommend wearing an N95 for 10 days. Also, after you've had COVID, uh, it's important to rest and take it easy until fully recover, to not push yourself too quickly. You will be less likely to catch it for the next few months. Um, I mean, every now and then somebody gets it two months after having it, but it's relatively um, uncommon. Now, you may wonder, do repeat COVID infections matter? Some people think that, you know, living with COVID means we should just accept we're going to get it once a year. Um, so as far as we can tell, the first infection is likely the riskiest. And this is part of why COVID is seeming milder right now is everybody, uh, I mean, 90% of people have had it at this point, right? So um, a lot of more vulnerable people have died. However, every year more people become vulnerable because their health changes, because they get older. So uh, even if you've had it before, if your health has declined uh, since then, or it just seems that for some people... The second or third time is worse than the previous one. And we're not sure whether that's about like the, the host, the person sick, their body and health being different versus the particular variant they got just stocking it to them harder, or maybe they breathed in more of a dose and got a worse uh, illness. So, so yeah, the first time is probably the riskiest time, but we shouldn't consider subsequent ones as being with no risk. They still have some risk both, you know, acute short-term, uh, and then in terms of longer-term uh, consequences, either the possibility of long COVID or just of increased uh, risk for chronic illnesses. Um, and it, again, it's especially older adults and those at high risk who can be hospitalized for a repeat infection. So I, I think it's worth still being careful about. So in summary, COVID and flu rates are pretty high right now, and they are going up for the time being. And holiday gatherings and travel and indoor activities uh, both are increasing transmission and are risky at this time. So the people who are at the highest risk of being hospitalized or dying from this are people who are uh, especially over age 80 and those with serious medical conditions. But again, the, the older or more physically vulnerable you are, the higher your risk. 
Um, so I think it's especially important um, to consider protective measures for this group, um, but also you could say for people over 65. And then the bivalent booster and the flu shot are really important, um, especially for older adults. Um, and then um, getting boosted is important, but is not enough. So again, I want to highly encourage you to consider preventive actions. And remember, this is not forever for the rest of our life. This is for the next you know, four to six weeks while cases are high and until they start uh, coming down. So um, again, I want to encourage you to consider masking with uh, an N95, or if you really want to go with smaller lighter, the KN95. Uh, I want you to consider ventilation, cracking windows and filtration, getting an air purifier or two. Uh, for your indoor spaces. I want to encourage you to be selective about indoor dining and indoor unmasked gatherings, and otherwise wear a mask if you are going to be doing things indoors with, around other people. Uh, be careful about people who have cold symptoms. They might tell you it's just the cold and they may or may not be right. And um, then again, you know, air purifiers or make the do-it-yourself box if you want to socialize indoors. So with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for watching this COVID update. Happy holidays. Uh, I really hope you will be able to gather with people and that you stay well and you enjoy yourself. And so please take care. And I'll be back with another update at some point in 2023. Take care, everyone. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.